0: Hi everyone, and welcome to The Science of Storytelling, the podcast that explores the most unique and engaging content collaborations between publishers and advertisers. I'm Jared Grimm. This week on the show, we're chatting with Jordan Schultz from Atlas Obscura, where he works as the Director of Audience and Marketing. Atlas Obscura catalogs unusual and obscure travel destinations. In a recent partnership with Chase Sapphire, they transported readers to New York's iconic past via an after-hours ride aboard a restored MTA train from the 1940s. We talked to Jordan about bringing New York's history to life, why he and his partner love grandiose Spanish door knockers, and the power of a really good idea. Enjoy the show. So, first off, Jordan, uh, why don't you give our listeners an idea of, you know, your career path? What what are you doing with Atlas Obscura and how did you get there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll take the second one first, if Mm -hmm. you don't mind. Uh, I actually uh, started in economics and policymaking. So I have a master's in economics from the University of Chicago. Uh, did that for a couple of years and what I really connected with was working with the press. Uh, so I went back to J school and kind of married this data analysis uh, with the ability to tell stories, really compelling stories and instantly got a job at the Chicago Tribune uh, building uh, data visualization projects for them. Uh, moved on to become, uh, strangely, the editor of uh, Red Eye, which is their commuter paper, uh, and five of their young adult publications and uh, slowly made my way towards audience analytics, which I felt sort of like had this nice mesh of, of narrative storytelling and then also using analytics to sort of refine that and, and bring it all together and, and had this like perfect amount of business, you know, media strategy. And um, and so I went and dedicated myself to audience uh, development and worked my way through a couple of startups and finally ended up at Atlas Obscure about two years ago. Um, to answer the former question, uh, Atlas of Skier is the definitive guide to the world's hidden wonders. So uh, we are a community-driven publication. We have 16,000 places and foods throughout the world that our, our audience has contributed back to us. Um, we also have an editorial stories arm. So uh, we, we have an expert staff of editors who not only analyze the work that our contributors do, but then also uh, write really wonderful, uh, inspired stories about um, hidden wonders throughout the world. Uh, they go and search them out. Uh, we also have an international trips business that has doubled year over year for the last two years. Uh, we started with just a few tours, like to Iceland and Cuba, um, before they were wild and popular and tourist destinations, and now we're operating tour of something like seventy-five tours this year. Uh, it'll be even more next year. And uh, and then we also have this incredible events business. It's like four. We host like four hundred, five hundred local events throughout the country, and, and well, and a couple across the globe as well. Um, and they all are driven by this database of sixty thousand places and foods that our community has found in the last ten years. Interesting. So how did how did Alice Obscure start? Yeah. What was the what was the origin story? Um, it was just that. It was that. Um, I think the the idea that wonder can be found near and far. Uh, So we had, uh, Josh and Dylan had a very wonderful uh, theory that um, we could chronicle all of these underserved, under-touristed, but still valuable locations and destinations throughout the world that really should Deserve some love. It shouldn't just be, you know, the, the Colosseum in Rome is, is wonderful, but it shouldn't just be that. And, yeah. you, tourists shouldn't just flock there. And similarly, there were pinball machines hidden behind a laundromat in Brooklyn, and nobody knew about this thing, right? Except for perhaps some local Brooklynites. Um, and so Josh and Dylan really thought, hey, what if we told these stories and what if we uncovered them for the, the rest of the world um, and tried to spread out that tourism and make it a little bit more even uh, for, you know, the small town clown motel in Nevada or the uh, you know uh, the the hidden sort of uh, tiles that you might not know where they are in Grand Central Station. Um, and they did that. Uh, and then they grew it. And people started writing in and telling them about all these different and wonderful sites throughout the globe. And and suddenly they had this huge database and it kept growing and growing and morphing. And then um, as that grew, uh, it turned into storytelling. And then as that grew, it sort of naturally evolved into, into events. Um, and then finally it was like, well, hey, if we can do that in cities in the United States, we can do that in cities across the world, we have this wonderful community We've writing in to tell us about these wonderful places. And so why couldn't we leverage them to show off those places they've written about? Uh, and so okay. there we got our international trips business and it's been this like nice evolutionary growth.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And so, were you attracted to it as, like, you an avid traveler as a background? Or were you, what
1: what was the part that attracted you to that company? You know, it really, and this is the first time I've actually answered this question publicly, really, I'm from small town Indiana. um, And I didn't get my first passport until I was 18. um, And I moved to Boston for college, and I was like, hey, I'm meeting all these people who are not like me, and I need to figure out how to learn more about this. And I just wanted all different types of experiences and sort of like buck the like insular, uh, lifestyle I was living before. And, uh, yeah, I I think that that's always been a part of it. But I also think that Atlas Obscura is unafraid of telling stories from the past. History is all telling, and history is very tired, or tied and married to place, and and so it fits right in with Atlas Obscura, and I've always been interested in that with the economics background, and and so yeah, it just is like the perfect amalgamation of of everything I've kind of worked on and and done up until this point.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting company. It's hard to fit it into a box. If it's a is it a media publisher? Is it a travel company? Uh, you know, is it a places listings, right? Is it, does it compete with Lonely Planet or an events business or, uh, is there a way to, to fit at less obscure into at least, you know, a definition of what it acts as as a company?
1: Uh, I think that that's, as a marketer, I struggle with that every day. We are, um, uh, you know, something I haven't mentioned yet is that we have a wonderful book, uh, series of books and physical products as well. And, um, and so not, you know, in some ways we're a retailer too, and, or an e-commerce business. Um, and yeah, I don't think there is, but, uh, and our readers come to us, come to us, at you know, the top of the funnel is so, uh, exceptionally varied um and not only are there funnels for our products but there's funnels for our business um and so it's hard to define us uh we define ourselves as a, as the definitive guide to the world in wonders because it, it does encompass yeah. that that whole business but in terms of getting our audience to talk about us um i think uh the best way to characterize us is as a community driven publisher mm-hmm. right uh, we are a media business and we're a media business that that Takes you off the internet and puts you into real life, whether that you know whether you do it on your own using the tools we provided or the experiences that we offer. Uh, let's
0: talk a little bit about Chase Sapphire and the campaign or program that you ran. First question is: Is what was it about Atlas that first uh, was attractive
1: to Chase? How did that How did that first interaction happen? What's most important about the Chase program is that Chase Sapphire is looking to deliver. Um, one-of-a-kind unique experiences to their audience to their card members or to their card holders um, to preserve their their dominance in the marketplace and atlas obscura is uniquely positioned to to deliver on that um, we uh, uh, one of the first events I heard about with Atlas Obscure is that we brought a, a wolf into a bar. Right. And there's like s- something so magical and so compelling about just thinking about sitting in a bar, taking in drinks, and having a wolf just prance yeah. right there. Um, and, and that's not something we would necessarily do for Chase Sapphire. But that's to give you the idea of the type of wonder and the type of merriment and the type of delight and surprise that we can deliver and so when uh you know when chase comes to us and says we need to delight and surprise our members we've got a a script ready for them we are we are ready to deliver on that promise um and so i think it just worked i think i think we can deliver on those unique experiences that they're truly after Mm -hmm. And can you talk
0: a little bit about the program for those that haven't seen it yet
1: yeah. So it's multifaceted. Uh, we did a number of experiences for Chase. Um, the I think the two big components were um, our New York Through Time event, uh, which was a very, very wonderful um, trip through the history of New York on a vintage subway car uh, with a number of performances on each car that represented different eras in, in New York's history and, and, and especially in terms of culture. Um, and then a Philly event that celebrated uh, filmmaking in Philadelphia, which is actually quite influential um, at an Art Deco high school uh, that is uses used as an event space and um, with a number of incredible live expo- uh, performances I think we're here to talk about chase or to, about the New York through time event honestly and objectively I don't think that I've ever experienced something quite like that yeah well I imagine
0: because you're pulling together a bunch of members right chase yeah. members and they're going through time but they're doing it through transit essentially <laughs> yeah. uh, can you talk about that's more than doing you know a 750 word Host, right like this is this is a lot of logistics a lot of variables I imagine there's a lot of permissions that are required uh, and it's all happening uh, where you have to do it at a certain time so you have time constraints. Can you talk about what it took as uh, operationally to make that happen was there were there any things that, that you didn't expect were going to happen that did happen?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, we couldn't have done this without the New York Transit Museum. Um, they are housed in an incredibly wonderful uh, retired 1930s rail station in Brooklyn um, and with an annex in Grand Central. Um, and we. Came about them in the same way we'd come about anything else, which is one of our community members contributed a, a place entry about them, and we sought them out and have been willing to work with them for years. And they have a set of vintage rail, rail cars that are still functioning. And so, from having them as a partner, really made the getting permission from uh, the MTA. Uh, not that difficult, right? Um, and they were able to navigate those waters for us. Um, they got uh, some of the best uh, rail car drivers in in the city to to join us and to drive each of these cars, which takes special care. I think the one thing that was really unexpected was actually the programming of the content that was in each of these rail cars. So we had a um, we had cars that spanned themes from the 1920s to present day, to sort of like a retro future concept. And we thought, well, we could do something like we could do spoken word or we could do poetry. But then as we took these rail cars through the subway, we started listening and we realized like, damn, the subway is really loud. Right. <laughs> um, and so we had to sort of search out acts that were not only visual, but really loud themselves mm-hmm. so they could compete with that sort of uh, track noise and the the sort of the bumps and the shakes of, of the MTA. Um, and so that's how we landed on sort of like musical performances and uh, and dancers and, and the like. Um, it was really just to compete with that awful, awful train noise yeah. that we hear every day on our morning commutes.
0: Yeah, you're competing with the loudest background noise you can probably imagine, and you're trying to create these really immersive experiences with people. Uh, can you talk about the people that participated in this event and this program? So members, and then and what that was like for them, and how many people were involved and then how you were able to take that experience to people that were never
1: on any of the trains. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The guests were phenomenal. Um, This activation, uh, because it was a Chase Card member event, uh, Chase Card members got first crack at the tickets, and they sold out instantly, uh, which was amazing uh, and made my job a whole hell of a ton easier. They also brought it in terms of fashion so every guest was dressed to the nines and according to different styles and era uh, uh, of fashion or different eras of fashion in new york city there was a flapper there were uh, folks that folks in zoot suits and like just every era of new york fashion was totally represented and it was really cool um to see that because it was not only that did, did Atlas Obscure bring these performers who really embodied that but uh the guests came, came, they brought the, they made the experience really. I mean, if, if they hadn't come um, capable of swing dancing alongside the performers in the 1920s car, super interested in the folk performers in the 1980s car, um, we wouldn't have had, the event wouldn't have been as spectacular as it was. And then from there, so you have
0: these people that are experiencing it and they're all dressed up and they're enjoying it. How do you translate that experience to a wider audience? Because one of Chase's desires, I imagine is this is, celebrate the members but show other people that aren't members right now
1: what members get to do. Yeah, so there's a there's two aspects to that. There's one the real life aspect. We were riding this car through the actual MTA subway. So as we were on the trains, we had not only were we as passengers taking photos of average train riders at you know 9 p.m. on a on a I think it was on a Thursday, uh, but they were taking photos of us. They saw and they were curious and they sought out information. There were Google searches after the event like what's this weird vintage yeah. train running running through the subway, um, and that was just like very visually stimulating and odd and and you can really put yourself in those shoes. Um, the then there's sort of the storytelling afterwards. Um, we brought expert filmmakers, a really fantastic video team, um, hired and, and hired photographers, and, and together we created some integrated assets that really told the story um, from uh, the conception of the idea all the way to uh, the, the finished product. Um, and we were able to work with Chase to deliver sort of the best message that represented not only sort of what it took and how hard it was to actually pull this, this like very amazing event off, but then also what the experience was like and seeing someone uh, death drop onto a, a passenger's shoes. is just really compelling social content, right? And we were able to tell that story. And that kind of leads me
0: into this idea of audience development. So you create it, you produce all this amazing you know, video footage and photography and, and editorial around it, Trying to get that out to a really wide audience has changed, I imagine, over your career. Is there, you know, a silver bullet? Is there a way to be able to easily get this
1: out to a really wide audience? Yeah, it's to tell good stories. Um, One of the things that I work on with our branded team is that we should always benchmark our branded content against our editorial content. And we're pretty, at Alice Obscure, we're pretty successful in doing that and um, we have some really solid uh, branded partners who are interested in good storytelling as well, Chase being one of them. Uh, We were uh, pretty on par with how the average or median videos perform, for example, with the, the video I was just referencing about the event itself. Um, and and the, you know sort of on site activations that we did to describe this event, whether it was uh, yeah, a branded write up or a, a post about the photography or something along these lines, they outperformed right alongside our editorial content because it was just that cool. Um, and that really speaks to the fact that like you have to start with a really good idea, you have to bring the quality, and then the distribution will work itself out. Um, of course, there are tricks and, and and things you have to to do to get there, especially. Um, uh, Algorithms and, and that sort of thing, but if you start with that core piece of content, and it's really good. The rest is is essential. Yeah, let's talk about you know some of those
0: tricks and uh, things that you need to do based on experience. So, that, and maybe we can focus on Facebook for a minute. I mean, quite a few years ago, it was all about organic reach and it was building up a following, and then you had this free distribution. Essentially, uh, over the last year and a half, two years, Facebook has publicly said that they're you know, lowering the, the amount of organic reach there is from brands and publishers. Have you seen a substantial change in what organic traffic was able to get on Facebook three years ago versus now?
1: Uh, we have. It's been stagnant before we were seeing growth and now we are, we are at, a, at a point where distribution is not uh, growing as rapidly as it once was, um, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, we've created strategies to own our audience a little bit more. And um, from a revenue diversification model, that actually is really great. Uh, we have a high-performing newsletter that drives tons of eyeballs. Uh, actually, um, I'm selling myself short. We have 10 high-performing newsletters that drive a whole hell of a ton of eyeballs. Um, we have. Uh, we've moved towards Facebook groups that are targeted at particular area, so not only do we have our regular uh, channel, but then we have uh, more than 40,000 members across uh, six local groups um, that we're able to, uh, you know, provide our experiences to, provide great content to, and foster really great community and conversations. Um, We, uh, by the time this airs, we'll have launched a a community forums on-site, so we're asking our audience to communicate to each other about their travel and their experiences um, and then, you know, we have our physical products as well. And so we're really able to, uh, hit our audience at so many different angles, uh, that this sort of waning and distribution doesn't really matter because it's a, it's Facebook is still a core component. And in some ways, uh, we, you know, we certainly have to participate in a play to play or pay to play environment. Uh, but it, it, we've got all this, all these own channels that are just so high performing that, we feel really confident in delivering eyeballs to our editorial content and our branded content.
0: Yeah, I find, you know, being in this business for a while is that it's what old is what's old is new again, right? So you've got things like e-newsletters and forums that remember 10 years ago, this is how you built an audience. You had a direct relationship with them, you produced good content, and you got it to them in a way that had this direct relationship. And then uh, social came along and... I think you made a really good point that, uh, it's, it's still there for Atlas especially uh, it's not growing like it was where you're betting the entire, uh, business on that. It's going to continue along the growth path. And I think we've seen uh, a few publishing groups go down because they were betting on that this incredible scale was going to grow at that same rate. Uh, so anyone who was, would be termed like a, a social publisher. Uh, we've seen a lot of them like little things go under. Uh, Mike even, you know, sold at a fraction of its original value. Mashable, same thing. Uh, it's interesting to see that, that you're moving your audience development in different directions as well and forming that direct relationship. So I think that's an interesting point there. What do you think about brands, uh, taking a, a stand and how that, uh, we've seen it. We saw Gillette. Recently, do an ad. We've seen Nike do um, some very like pointed advertising, and using their their advertising and reaching their audiences to try and affect change in the world. Do you see Atlas Obscura trying to affect change in
1: the world in its own way? Um, I, I, I do think that in some ways, this idea of, I mean. Look, we operate tours to Rome, right? But what we're going to show you as Atlas Obscura is not Aperol Spritz's by the Colosseum. It's it's the uh, hidden porthole that, or keyhole that gives you this beautiful view of St. John's Basilica. Um, we are going to... Or St. Peter's Basilica. My gosh, I can't get that out. We operate tours to, culinary tours through through Lisbon, and we're going to take you to the mom and pop shop as opposed to the the Michelin starred place. Um, and that's a stand in some ways, right? Uh, that's saying that there are, you can go to these huge tourist destinations and spread out, uh, across those, those, those destinations and really find things that no one else has um, that there there's always something around the corner that is interesting and exceptional um, and incredible really um, And so yeah, I mean I think I think that that drives more understanding in the world and and so I don't know that we're necessarily taking a stand in the way that Gillette recently did um, but I think we're taking I like this word challenge. I think we're challenging, uh, people to think beyond uh, what Instagram delivers, what or what you see in your Instagram feeds. I think we're we're thinking about um, how to intellectually stimulate audiences beyond uh, sort of these classic structures, which are wonderful and you should absolutely go see. But we're trying to spread out that that tourism, that over tourism, that bring masses, masses and masses of people, uh, and really damage each and every one of uh, everyone's um, experience of of that place. Yeah,
0: with you being so close to. To all of these places and these... Do you have any... What's your what's your current favorite hidden gem?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, no. Um, so, I, I, about a year ago, I was in Cartagena in Colombia, um, which is a wonderful, wonderful city. Um, and the place that I contributed to the atlas... Uh, oh, in the old town, there are these wonderful door knockers, uh, and I spent a day walking around with my partner, photographing all these door knockers. And so, it comes from this—it uh, comes from a Spanish tradition during the colonial period. Affluent families um, installed these really grandiose door knockers on the doors of their homes to signal the type of work that they did. So, like a sailor might have uh, put up uh, a door knocker in the shape of a fish um a farmer maybe in the shape of some sort of cattle um and they Every home in uh, the old town of Cartagena has these door knockers, and they're just so whimsical and wonderful and just beautiful in all the colors. They are, you know, on um, these bright hues of orange and pink and blue, um, and they all come each with their own individual history. So we spent the whole day just, like, sort of mapping these out and, and figuring, you know, taking guesses and, and shots at what the families of you might have done who, who built these homes.
0: And I think there's something very unique about the idea that you are, contributing to something that may stand the test of time. Like you mentioned the door knockers, and you and your partner went around and you collected all of these photos so that there was this repository of information that other people could then experience. And there's something really interesting about... You know, leaving your mark on the world as well—that I think that people
1: could definitely resonate with. I absolutely agree. Um, uh, You know, our our audience, especially those who contribute, are so exceptionally curious, and they want to make sure that the world is chronicled appropriately. Um, And I think that really contributes to this idea that uh, evening out tourism—that you can. You can find hidden wonders around the corner. And, and those door knockers serve a purpose not only to me as a tourist in Cartagena, but also to people who live in Cartagena. Um, perhaps they, uh, you know, the 12 year old who walks down the streets and, and sees these door knockers every day doesn't know that history. And if they, you know, we're not currently publishing in Spanish, but if if one day we do that or if this 12 year old knows English, he uh, can Google certainly door knockers in Cartagena and, and come up with uh, yeah, the Atlas Obscure entry for them. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, The last thing I wanted to talk about was
0: you have these valuable media properties that are valuable to people. So Atlas Obscura to people that are trying to travel the world and maybe experience countries and places in a different way. You might have a news organization that is uh, holding to task leaders and making sure that the information is getting to people. But the publishing industry is under duress right now. to say it lightly, I mean the it's the business model seems like uh like it hasn't been found yet in this digital age. Facebook and Google take about 80% of the advertising dollars. Subscribers are hard for most publications to to have a paywall for. The New York Times might be able to do it, uh, but probably not every publisher can ask for $15 a month to see their content. Do you see a path forward for for media businesses and
1: publishers that you think will make it sustainable over the next decade, I think it's different for every publisher. I don't. Uh, one thing that I take issue with is uh, the news industry is actually really, really wonderful at knowledge share. Uh, we all talk to each other and we all discover each other's models and talk about them and what they're working, uh, what they're working on, what's working for them, and and that's great. Uh, but what that creates is sort of uh, a, a chase to find the same model, uh, among many publishers mm-hmm. and, uh, publishers that will survive sort of this changing, uh, landscape and, uh, in search of a, you know, especially when it comes to revenue and traffic, um, are going to be the ones that find their own path and find the things that resonate, uh, with their audiences the best. Um, and for Atlas Obscura, that's Trips. Uh, that's in live experience. Uh, things like the Chase Sapphire event, really delivering on this promise that we can help you experience something you've seen every single day in a different way, um, and and delivering just delivering on that promise. Um, and so branded branded content certainly is a component of that, um, but it's also it's just growing. Uh, you know, our footprint in uh, in these other ways. The the ones that will shine and sort of move on and, and grow are those that can find their own way. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, I think we are starting to see the idea
0: that that some publishers are maybe event businesses, right? And maybe some other ones are trip businesses at their core, right? You'll always have one primary revenue stream that comes in some way uh, and each is giving back their value to their, their audience in their own way. If you were, so just a final question, if you were to pick one, so we talk a lot about storytelling and, and how you get a story across, what is your favorite story? Whether it's a book, or a movie, my favorite one of all time.
1: So. Yeah, I've actually tattooed this on my left arm. Come on. Um, I am a big fan of Don Quixote. Yeah. Uh, this idea of a, and really this is the most Atlas Obscure answer you'll ever receive, uh, the the idea of an old man traveling the world and thinking that he's slightly grander than he is, and then coming to terms with experiencing the world as a knight, uh, and and but really being an old man. Uh, I think is inside of all I think I think Don Quixote' is a little bit inside of all of us. we're all explorers in some way and and we all um, we all travel the world or or you know travel our own backyards and uh, and have to come to terms with our own realities uh, and how they relate to, to other people. You are right that is as Atlas Obscura
0: of a possible best story that you could have. You're in the right place, it sounds like. So I want to thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Uh, It was great learning a lot about how Atlas Obscura works um, and and a few different hidden gems for all of our listeners as well. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. The Science of Storytelling is a podcast by Pressboard. It's hosted by Jared Grimm, with design by Phil Chung, and production by me, Leah Bjornsson. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or sign up for our monthly newsletter. Visit PressBoardMedia.com to learn more.